Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we are going to begin reading in verse 17. I'm just going to read verse 17 and 18. As you know, contextually, I've been working through from verse 5 through 18 as one big section. Um, chapter 2, verse 5 through 18, but I'm just going to, uh, for the sake of time, read verse 17 and 18 this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me pray. Father, we ask as we consider your word, the word that the head of our church Christ has given to his church by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us ears, that your Spirit would give us ears to hear what he is saying to the churches. That we might understand who it is that saves us, sanctifies us, and carries us home. That we would understand what it is that Jesus is our great high priest, that the eternal Son of God took humanity to himself that he might make propitiation for our sins, that he might endure the suffering of temptation and be able to help those of us who are the tempted. We pray that you would be honored in this as we study your word together and that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, is Jesus really sufficient? Is he enough? I suspect that, that if we're honest, we might be able to articulate um, that we think Jesus is sufficient, that he's enough, that we would never likely argue that Jesus is in some way insufficient. Yet I also suspect that we all often live like he's not really enough, like he isn't really sufficient. See, is his sacrifice enough to cover my sins, to pay my debt? Is his priestly work sufficient to bring me into right relationship with God? Or, or do I need to add something? Per, perhaps I could add my own effort as a law keeper. Or, or how about my service to Christ's church? Now you might say, well, I, I never say that, but I, I would never say that, but here's, here's how you know you do actually cherish that thought in your heart. When you begin to suffer, you begin to say, Lord, haven't I served you? Don't I deserve better than this is really the question you're asking? What, what about my effort in, in ginning up sincere faith? I mean, it's justification. The Declaration of Righteousness forgiveness of sins by faith alone. And that word faith, by can kind of throw us off when we understand faith. By faith alone. As if faith is some kind of virtue that we gin up 
to get justification. And that's not what we mean. Really, it's probably more helpful to say justification through faith alone. Faith is just an instrument through which we receive something that someone else has done. In other words, the work of Christ on our behalf. Faith is not a virtue that God rewards. Christ is the virtuous one whom God rewards, and us, we receive that through him. What about if I add some self-loathing guilt and shame? See, for some of you, it's like, well, Christ, Christ is good, but I need to beat myself up a little bit. But, but there's another step here. Let me, let me push it a step further. Maybe I can get to the idea that Jesus is enough to bring me forgiveness of sins and justification, the declaration of righteousness. But is he really sufficient for my ongoing care? Is, is he really enough to help me walk through the temptations of this life? Is Jesus enough for me to walk in holiness? You know, I know he wants me to trust and obey. And I know that my obedience is not how I received my justification, my forgiveness of sins and declaration of righteousness. But I also know that it's really hard, really hard to live life as a grateful and godly Christian. Isn't there something more than Jesus that is necessary to help me with the Christian life? Is he really enough? And when I say more than Jesus, I mean Jesus working even now by his Spirit. So you say, yes, there's something more you need the Holy Spirit. Yes, I agree. But I'm, when I say it's something more than Jesus, I mean something more than the Lord working by his Spirit. Is there something more? Is his priestly service for me really sufficient? Don't I need more help than Jesus? You see, I, I heard about the latest discipleship program that has really good principles and a really good format. Don't I need that extra help? I, I heard about this amazing Christian counselor. Don't, don't I need that counselor? Or likely, I, I can't walk with Christ without some medical help to deal with my issues, right? Or I, I really struggle to resist certain temptations. So a kind of strict asceticism, a denial of anything to my flesh is necessary for me, right? I've got to deny any pleasure because I tend to overindulge. That's necessary for me, right? Or may, maybe I need a short-term missions trip to really stir up my passion. Or I need a small group to really build up my piety. Or I need an accountability group to really keep me in check. Now please, please do not hear me saying that all that stuff is unhelpful. I'm not suggesting that. I think we ought to thank God for anything that is helpful. For example, I'm thankful for modern medicine. When I say you don't need modern medicine to walk with Christ, I don't mean that we ought not to give thanks for the grace of God in modern medicine and take advantage of the use of it to be helpful. Okay? I'm thankful for my small group. I'm thankful. But here's the heart of my question. Do we need those things to walk with the Lord? 
is Jesus insufficient to our daily fight against temptation? If so, what does that say for Christians before us who didn't have access to those things? What does that say to Christians in poor nations that, have, that lack all access to those things? Can they not grow in godliness? Here's my contention. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough to atone for your sins and to help you fight temptation and walk in godliness. He's enough. He's enough to atone for your sins and to help you fight temptation and walk in godliness. Jesus' priestly work is sufficient for you. Now, I want to give another caveat just, just so I take this off the table for an objection. I'm not arguing that the Christian life is lived as just you and Jesus. That's not my point. I'm not saying Jesus is your co-pilot in your isolated Christian life. Do you hear me? Okay? It's not what I'm saying. It's absurd to say he's your co-pilot anyway. He's your sovereign. The car doesn't run if he doesn't uphold it by the word of his power. It ceases to exist. you understand that? Without Jesus upholding the universe by the word of his power, it becomes as if it were not. Jesus is enough, what I'm saying, for his church. He has saved you into the body of Christ, and he ministers to you for your justification and for your godliness in and through his church. My point is just this, that it is not ultimately our church which justifies or sanctifies you. It is ultimately Christ that does that through and in his church. And he does that work by his spirit through his church as the church preaches and teaches his word. You don't need to look elsewhere. You don't need your church to hold anything out to you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it is with this that we come to the primary focus. Did you hear that? It's with this that we come to the primary focus of the incarnation of the Son that's being argued for in the book of Hebrews. In this, what we call letter to the Hebrews, which um, many scholars will argue is actually a sermon to the Hebrews, we talk about the incarnation of the Son and the fact that the Son is better. But today we really come to the reason most continually asserted in the book of Hebrews for why the Son is better than every servant that came before God. All the prophets, all the priests, all the kings pointed forward to and provided types of him. All the scriptures were proclaiming him. All the sacrifices, all the ceremonies, all the religious festivities pointed forward to him. The whole of the old covenant administration under Moses was a temporary pedagogue. In other words, we're told in Galatians 3, a pedagogue is someone who keeps the children in line while they're growing up. So if you will, here is the people of God in their infancy and childhood being kept in line under the Mosaic Covenant until the heir, the Son, Christ, comes. It's all anticipating him. It was all pointing to the Son, all anticipating the Son, all providing types and shadows of the Son, and he is the substance. Not only the human servants, I want you to hear this, but even the angels were heralding the Son and proclaiming Him. He's better than all. Better than all. 
With that said, the author of Hebrews is really keen in the bulk of his sermon to show you a particular manner, a particular manner in which he's better than all. That particular manner is found in him being a better priest. Yes, he is a better prophet in that he reveals the word of God. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. His son is the final, better word. That's true. Yes, he is a better king in that he rules and reigns. All the kings before were sinful, were men. They could not rule and reign God's eternal kingdom forever. He is a better king. He ultimately subdues all of our enemies and all of his enemies. But our focus above all in this book is that he is a better redeemer. He's a better priest. Learning that Jesus is a sovereign king and that his kingdom has come, I want you to hear this. Learning that Jesus is a sovereign king and that his kingdom has come is only good news if he's redeemed you and brought you into his kingdom. The fact that he is king is terrifying news if you're his enemies, if you're the objects of his wrath rather than his friends or his brothers, his servants, the objects of his glorious grace. So today we focus on the incarnation of the Son in that the eternally begotten Son of God became man so that, please hear this, so that he might redeem and save us. So that he might justify us, sanctify us, and preserve us. So that he might be our great high priest. So let's look at Hebrews 2, verse 17 and 18 again, just to see that emphasis. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This means that he's becoming a man, body and soul. He's taking humanity to himself So that, here's the purpose clause, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To this end, here it is, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now as we look at this text today, I want to divide up our consideration of Christ's priesthood into two if you will, priestly works for us. So, if you will, we're looking at his office of priest in two major works that he does. One, first work is his once-for-all atonement for our sins. In other words, Christ's atoning work as priest for us, for our sins. And the second thing we're going to look at is his, his ongoing priestly work of caring for us, of interceding for us, of helping us when we're tempted. So let's look at the first one first. The incarnate son's priestly work of atonement. This once for all work, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now I want to take three aspects of this verse really briefly on this atoning work of the son for us. Three aspects. First, his office. Look at his office. He became incarnate. He became like his brothers in every respect to be what? To be high priest. That's his office. He is going to become, that's what he became, promised to become in the Old Testament, became at his incarnation our high priest. 
Now, a priest is one who, on behalf of the people, goes to God and offers some sacrifice. He's the one who does that. He intercedes on behalf of the people. He stands between God, who is angry, and man, who is the offender, who's angered God, and he propitiates God, satisfies his wrath, and he expiates the sin of the people. In other words, he cleanses them of all their sin, brings atonement and forgiveness, covering of the sin. That's what the priest would do. And Jesus comes as the high priest. Now he must, what, what does that have to do with his incarnation? He must be a man to hold the office of high priest. Must be. And he held this office to offer sins for sacrifice, uh, sacrifices, sorry, not offer sins, to offer sacrifices for sin to God on behalf of men. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what high priests do. They're appointed among men to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's the office that he's... that. The author of Hebrews is pointing out here. He's taken the office of the high priest. He must be a man to do that. Second, let's look at the character of his office. The character of his office. You get a couple characteristics of it in chapter 2. It's not just that he became a man to be a high priest. He became a man to be a merciful and faithful high priest. You hear that? This, these are the characteristics of his office. It's not just that he's the high priest. It's that he's a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus, let me take faithful first. Jesus was faithful to his priestly service before the Father and on behalf of his people. He was faithful. He relentlessly and without distraction pursued this end. He set out to fulfill all righteousness for us. If you guys remember the scene where John the Baptist is baptizing and he's proclaiming the coming Messiah... And this is in Matthew 3. And Jesus arrives on the scene. And as he arrives on the scene, he seeks to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is like, no, I I shouldn't be baptizing you. And as Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist refuses, Jesus points out to him, he he says, listen, you need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now what's Jesus' point? Why why does he need to be baptized? He does not need to be baptized for the repentance of sins, right? As John the Baptist was baptizing everybody else. He had no sin to repent of. Why did he need to be baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. What's the point there? John the Baptist is the final old covenant prophet. He is, if you will, the second Elijah, the one pointing to the Messiah, preparing the way for the Lord. And as the final old covenant prophet, he's commanded God's people to be baptized, And so God's people are coming to be baptized, and Jesus, as the second Adam, as the true Israel, submits to the law of God, to what the prophets command, and so Jesus is going to be baptized to be obedient to what God has commanded of his people, just like Jesus is circumcised to that end. Jesus is taken for the rite of purification to that end. Jesus is regularly, as is his habit, in the synagogue, 
to that end. Jesus goes for the Passover to that end. Jesus is actively keeping God's law in every respect on our part, on our behalf. We call this his active obedience. He is actively obeying God's law in all of his life. Endured temptation in every way that we do, yet without sin. He's faithful as our high priest. Faithful. Godly. Sinless. Holy. Righteous. He did all that the Father gave him to do. This isn't John 17, 4. Father, glorify your son. I've, I've, I've given you, I've done everything you've given me to do. We see his faithfulness to his people on the last night of his life as he comforts them. Last night of his life, he's going to the cross. What does he spend his time doing? Comforting his disciples. He's a faithful high priest. Telling them of the Holy Spirit he is sending to strengthen them. We see his faithfulness as he prays for them. Even asking the Father, in John 17, 11, he even asked the Father to watch over his disciples during his cross work because he won't be able to. He's faithful. Further, he's a merciful high priest. He's merciful toward his people in all things. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd and had compassion on them. He was merciful in rebuking the false shepherds. Now, you might say merciful. Is it merciful to rebuke false shepherds? Yes, because false shepherds are deceiving the sheep to their own destruction. So a man who will not rebuke a false teacher is a man who is not merciful toward God's people. He's merciful. He was merciful in weeping over his rebellious people in Jerusalem. He was merciful in caring for his mother. You know, even while he's on the cross dying for his sins, he looks down at John, one of his disciples, and says, Behold your mother. And to his mother, Behold your son. And what's going on there? John then takes Mary into his house to care for her. He's on the cross being faithful to his mom, making sure she's cared for. He's merciful. Above all, we see his mercy in his work on the cross. He could have commanded legions of angels to make war on the people. He told that to Pilate. But he willingly set his face for Jerusalem and went to the cross to save because he's a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, we see the third detail here is the end or the goal of his office. Merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Look at that last phrase in verse 17. To make propitiation for the sins of his people. He came to atone for our sins. To cover them, to pay for them. To propitiate or satisfy the wrath of God against his people. Against his brothers. Against the children God has given him. In the old covenant... There was a whole sacrificial system culminating on the Day of Atonement wherein the priest brought sacrifices to pay the penalty for the sins of the people. To bring, them, to bring propitiation, if you will, to propitiate God, to satisfy his just wrath against the sins of the people. And the 
expiate the sins of the people, to cover them, to forgive them, to bring atonement for them. There would be an offering of bulls and goats. Now catch this. The offering of bulls and goats was for the people and for the priests. First, the priests would offer bulls and goats for their own sins, and then they would offer for the sins of the people. However, Jesus as the high priest is not offering bulls and goats for atonement. But rather, he's offering himself. He's offering himself. He's unique and better than all of the other priests for two reasons. First, and there's more than this, but I'm just going to give you these two. First, he's, better, he's a better priest because he has no sin. He has no sin. He's holy, sinless, and undefiled. Second, he's a better priest because he offers a better sacrifice. A sacrifice that atones for sin once and for all. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. You're going to see how much this goes through this book. Really the large portion of this argument is going to be about Christ being a better priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. It's better than those priests. He has no need to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, and he has no need to sacrifice again and again because his sacrifice of himself is once for all. Look at chapter 9 and verse 11. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11 But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, comparing heaven, if you will, to the tabernacle. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means, listen, not by means of the blood of bulls or of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Look down at verse 25 of chapter 9. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all. That's all time. Once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin because he's already dealt with it. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Look at chapter 10 and verse 11. Chapter 10 and verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you hear this glorious good news? Jesus paid it all. All of it. His priestly work of propitiation and expiation, his atonement for your sins is sufficient. You don't need to add anything to his work. Your good works are neither necessary nor helpful in atoning for your sins. When you look to Jesus in faith, God forgives you all your sins because he, Jesus, is sufficient. And his atoning work, Jesus' atoning work, is sufficient. Do you believe that? Or do you sit around, navel-gazing, endlessly introspective about yourself, trying to buy off God with your guilt and shame or with your good works or your pursuit of an even deeper sincerity of faith? Do you trust him to be sufficient? Or do you wonder, is my faith enough? Is my faith enough? Let, let me answer that question for you. No. Your faith is not enough. You get, you get that clear? Let's just end it. Let's end the discussion. Am I good enough? Am I sincere enough? Am I faithful enough? Am I righteous enough? Am I repentant enough? Am I understanding enough? Am I smart? No, no, no. Just stop debating that topic. It's over. If you were any of those things, Jesus would not have gone to the cross for you. He wouldn't have needed to. But because you were none of those things, Jesus went to the cross for you. And he is now at the right hand of the Father for you. And there your righteousness is. And your righteousness, because it remains in Christ, is the same yesterday and today and forever. And there's nothing you can do to add to it or take away from it. Let's be clear about that, Christians. Just end the debate. Please hear me, saints. Weak and weary sinners, you can rest the full weight of your sinful soul on Christ. The full weight of it. He can bear it all. He's enough. His work is sufficient to pay for all your sins. Even your doubt.
even your weak faith. You may have a weak faith, but you do not have a weak Savior. This is not the end of his work. This is not the end of his work. Did you hear that? He continues even now to care for you as your great high priest. That leads to my second point. That leads to my second point. If that wasn't enough, here's the second one. The incarnate son's ongoing work of care and intercession. His ongoing priestly work of care and intercession. Not only does he atone for all your sins, but he continues to care for you. Look at verse 18 of Hebrews 2. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. Hebrews 2 verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me break the text down for you. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. Here's what he's getting at. When the eternal son of God took humanity to himself, what we call the hypostatic union in technical terms, where the two natures become united in one person, Jesus Christ. When he took humanity himself, when he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, when he came with all of our frailties and weakness to save us for our sins, from our sins, when that happened, Jesus was tempted. He was tempted as Adam was tempted. He was tempted as Israel was tempted. He was tempted as we are tempted. Now there's a caveat to this. Jesus was not tempted internally. He was tempted externally. Why do I point that out? Because we deal with both as fallen people, we deal with both internal temptation that comes from our own flesh, our own heart, and external temptation, the world and the devil. Jesus was never tempted internally because he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not in sinful flesh. In other words, we're tempted by the world and the flesh and the devil. Jesus coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not in sinful flesh, was tempted by the world and the devil, but not by his own sinful flesh because he didn't have sinful flesh. He was in, if you will, the state of Adam in the garden before the fall. Adam in the garden before the fall had no internal temptation. All the temptation was external to him. Now, after Adam sinned, he then had both internal and external temptation. Jesus was tempted by Satan continually throughout his life. But that wasn't the end of his temptations. Not only at the beginning of his life where you see in Matthew 4 where he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by Satan. But he's tempted, if you will, harassed, dogged by Satan his whole life. The world continually was tempting Jesus. Jesus was tempted by financial hardship. Jesus was tempted by hunger. Jesus was tempted by thirst. Jesus was tempted by the insecurity of having no place to lay his head. Jesus was, to, was tempted to discouragement by his own family as they questioned him and some did not trust him. Jesus was, attempt, was tempted to abandon his mission, his mission by his own disciples 
as they tried to get him off course. Jesus was tempted to pride by adoring crowds as he performed miracles and taught as one with authority. Not internal pride. Do you understand the difference? External exaltation. Jesus was tempted in betrayal by one of his disciples, one of his closest friends. Jesus was tempted as his people called for his blood, had him tried and beaten, and as he was spat upon and mocked. Jesus was tempted as he was abandoned by his closest friends at the most difficult point of his life. Jesus was tempted as he faced his father's wrath for our sin. Now you might say, well, if he didn't have internal temptation, then how did he actually suffer? I mean, is it the suffering of my sin, my own, or temptation, my own internal pull to give in? Suffering of temptation, really my, my own internal pull to give in. L- listen, I want you to hear this. Temptation is suffering whenever you do not give in. You want to end the suffering of temptation? Give in to your sin. And the suffering of temptation ends. I feel the suffering of temptation. I want this thing. I want to pursue it. I'm being tempted to it. I don't want to trust the Lord for it. That temptation begins to cause a kind of suffering. I'm lacking this thing I desire. I want it. I want it. I'll sin to get it. I'm being tempted to sin to get it. It's a kind of suffering, isn't it? If I want it to end, I give in. Suffering ends. Suffering ends. I'm tempted to pleasure. I pursue that. Give in. I'm talking about sinful pleasure here. Give in. The suffering of temptation ends. Jesus never gave in. He never submitted to temptation. Thus, he lived every moment of every day of every week, of every month, of every year, of the whole course of his life in the suffering of temptation to the end. Now look again at Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted Now, we can also translate this, he is able to help those who are the tempted. In other words, as you're called in verse 3, or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 1, holy brothers, we are the tempted. Isn't that a fascinating contrast? Look at chapter, I mean, verse 18 of chapter 2. He is able to help those who really can be translated, who are the tempted, and then chapter 3, verse 1, therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. We're the tempted. And Jesus is able to help us. Now the point is not that God was unable to help us prior to the incarnation. The point is that when the Son became incarnate and he took humanity to himself as our great high priest who was himself tempted, he experienced temptation according to his humanity. 
God did not experience temptation, for God cannot be tempted, James chapter 1, nor does he tempt anyone. His point is that our great high priest sympathizes with us and is in every way sufficient for us. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, was, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Thus, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Friends, my guess is that beneath all your failure to stand when tempted, whether that temptation is from the world or the flesh or the devil, my guess is beneath all your failure to stand in the face of that temptation, is your suspicion that God is not really good. We are like Israel, to whom God asked. Listen to what Israel asked, or God asked Israel in, through Jeremiah and Jeremiah 2. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, where is the Lord? Who brought us up from the land of Egypt. Who led us in the wilderness. See, God had done this great redeeming work for Israel. And Israel turned from trusting in him to trusting in idols. To sin. And the Lord's question is fascinating, isn't it? I redeemed you. I carried you through the wilderness. Yet you went into sin. What wrong did you find in me? What, what, what did you find wrong with me? It's a central question, really, that Satan brings to Adam and Eve, isn't it? Here you are in the garden. I've given you every tree to eat from except that one. And Satan's temptation is God's holding back something good from you. Can you really trust him? Should you really believe him? I think he's being stingy. He's holding back something good from you. Really trust him? It's the core of why we do not stand in the face of temptation from the world and the flesh and the devil. The core commitment that we have a problem with is the commitment to the fact that God is good. That he does look after our good and his own glory. You see, I talk to the young women who get into bad relationship after bad relationship because they don't believe God is good and will provide. Fundamentally. I talk to the young men who have the same problem. I talk to the businessman who participates in unethical business behavior because he doesn't believe God is good and will provide. He's going to make it happen for himself. We, we could go on with this, right, folks? Talk to the Christian person who's unable to speak the truth in love to someone else because they're afraid of the loss of their reputation if they do, 
because ultimately they don't believe God is good and, and, and will care for them and uphold them. When we capitulate to the temptation to sin, it's as if we can hear Jesus inquire. It's if we hear Jesus inquire, what wrong did you find in me that you went far from me? You did not say, where is the Lord who brought us out of slavery to Satan and sin and death, who atoned for our sins on the cross, who has led us these many years in the wilderness of the world by his spirit, and who will safely carry us home? What wrong did you find in me? See, I know you can become greatly discouraged by the temptation to sin. But you have a great high priest who sympathizes with you and who's able to help you. Who throughout his life had every reason to question whether God is good and never did. Yet was tempted in every way as you are, but without sin. And so he's able to sympathize with you. So he's moved with compassion to care for you. We're told he's ever interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't just intercede for you when you need it. He's ever interceding for you all the time because you need it all the time. So you trust him. Listen to how John Owen puts this. I'll close with this. And hereunto we have, have we encouragement given us by the great qualifications of his person in this office. He is faithful. He is merciful. And that which is the effect of them both, he is able. He is every way sufficient to relieve and succor or carry help poor, tempted souls. He has a sufficiency of care, wisdom, and faithfulness to observe and know the seasons wherein help is necessary unto us. A sufficiency of tenderness and mercy and compassion to excite him thereunto. A sufficiency of power to afford help that shall be effectual. A sufficiency of expectation at the throne of grace to prevail with God for suitable supplies and help. He is every way able to help them that are tempted. To him be praise and glory forevermore. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would trust your Son, our great high priest, the one who has come and done the priestly work of atoning for our sins and the offering of himself once for all. So that we would be forgiven our sins, cleansed of unrighteousness, declared righteous in Christ because of his obedient, faithful life, shown mercy because he is merciful. We pray Father, that we would trust Christ, our high priest, in his ongoing work of care, of his ability to help those of us who are being tempted, to carry us safely home, to preserve us to the end. We pray we would continue to look to him, to consider him, to listen to him, 
to trust in him, to cast the whole weight of our soul upon him, to know that he's good, to see the evidence of his goodness and grace and mercy and faithfulness in his life and death and resurrection and ascension and present intercession for us. And no matter what temptation we face, to know that he is able to sympathize with us, able to help us, that he knows our weakness and is moved with compassion to carry us through. May we look to him and trust him for the forgiveness of our sins and for our continuation in godliness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.